Asian or American? Hi everyone, welcome to MX Asian American. My name is Karen Zhang, and this podcast is about the Asian American experience. Unpacking everything from mental illness, parental models, to food and pop culture. Welcome back everyone to MX Asian American. Today we have Alana. You want to introduce yourself first? Yes. Hi everyone. My name is Alana Lieberman. Uh, and I am a Chinese-American adoptee, uh, and I was raised Jewish, hence my last name, Lieberman. <laughs> Wait, are there, uh, maybe I'm uncultured or stuff, something, are there, yeah, like, no. very um, stereotypical, like, Jewish last names? Yes, okay, <laughs> for sure. So, um, I might even be getting this wrong, but I feel that a lot of Jewish last names, uh, Ashkenazi Jewish last names, are kind of from a German root. So you'll get oh. like Liebe means love in German. So my last oh. name really means love man. <laughs> um, so there's Lieber, uh, Lieberman, uh, like Gunzenhauser, uh, the Heinowitzes, like oh. it's, it's very German sounding. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. I learned something new today. <laughs> That's awesome. Cause right away, I mean, people like growing up in school and like even roll call Mm. would be a very uh, like anxiety producing thing for me in grade school and in through college um and when the teacher would say like Ilana Lieberman and I'd raise my hand like I'd always catch that like micro look that subtle like like, oh oh I pictured like a white curly haired like pasty white girl with the last name Lieberman Mm -hmm. yeah it's me well, um, today we want to unpack a little bit your experience as an adoptee, and I think um, I want to highlight like more voices from this community as well. So I watched your uh, YouTube video about talking about your life story, part one. Um, so starting from the beginning, um, where did you grow up and how was like your childhood like? Yeah, so like even before that in the orphanage in China, I was actually the oldest one out of the group of girls that I got adopted with. Mm. So I was 17 months old when I got adopted. That's a little over, I believe the half a year and a half mark. So I, you know, my mother, her name is Debbie. She adopted me and she was kind of thinking she was going to get a newborn. Her and my dad got all these newborn things like bassinets, everything. And like, honestly, I was kind of looking like a toddler. So (laughs) even that was like a switch up when she, when they adopted me, but we lived in a little upstate New York suburb called Binghamton. And then um, when I was nine, we moved to Vestal, which is just an even more suburban area outside of the small city of Binghamton. Awesome. Um, Do you know where in China you were born? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And y'all, I might be butchering this, (laughs) but Nanning, I believe it's called oh, okay. N-A-N-N-I-N-G, but it's in the Guangxi province. Awesome. Yeah. How, like, how was, like, the demographic, like, where you grew up in, like, uh, the suburbs of New York, right? I would imagine right. it should be very diverse. <laughs> right? Because when people think of New York, well, I mean, people who are not from New York have never been to New York, you know, it, they, they think it's all a city. Yeah. But it's it's not. And once you get even central state and even um and more northern it's very there's a lot of rural parts and suburban parts but you know the demographic was very white i think in the city the small city of binghamton it's kind of like a small city like buffalo but even smaller um 
there was more diversity, more black people, more Latinx people, but in Vestal, like the even more suburban area, it was predominantly, predominantly white. A few um, Eastern Asian people here and there, a few Indian people too, but there, and like a literal handful of black people in Vestal, but you know, the POC experience was uh, slim. <laughs> yeah, slimmer. like to me, New York is just Manhattan, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I wish, right? Um, I wish. <laughs> yeah, maybe a little Bronx, um, Queens. <laughs> mm-hmm, all the boroughs. Yeah. But yeah, I know, I, I know a lot of people just think New York is just diversity all over, but I think this is true for a lot of states. It's, it's a mix. Like the cities honestly have more diversity than the yeah way more representation Uh uh-huh so um how did you grow up in that environment like how was going to school like you mentioned in the very beginning um yeah yeah going to school was interesting and I you know throughout high school elementary to high school I had a very like solid group of friends and that solidified more and more towards graduation but no matter what the optics of it, I, I felt left out and not Mm. that they made me feel left out, but any negative thing that, or perceived negative thing that I felt happened, um, for me, I, I kind of on autopilot connected it back to my Asian heritage Mm. and any, this is interesting because I, I, I really, I don't think I said this in the video, but I suffered a lot with my identity. I, I, I know I, I touched on it obviously. Um, but there were really, really insecure moments, like when I would go to temple or just have anxiety in middle school. And unfortunately, none of my white friends could empathize. And that's not their fault, but that just is what it is. They literally can't because they're not POC. They're not Asian. They're not adopted. And I almost experienced, I think, unintentional shaming from some of my friends when they tried to console me just because I don't think they knew how but um yeah any negative thing I had no choice but to to connect that back to the way I looked uh and my racial background and I feel that and I mean I can't even attest this because I don't know what it's like but I feel like when you're brought up in an Asian family like your biological family Asian jokes hurt of course and I'm not trying to speak for anyone who is uh, raised by an, with Asian parents, but I'm sure they hurt. Obviously, racism is everywhere and it's prevalent and you feel it. But for me, an Asian joke was really an adoption joke. Mm. And that hurt on a deeper level because one of my friends, she's Latinx, but she was like, maybe it hurts so much, those Asian jokes or those Asian comments, because maybe for a person who knows about their heritage and knows like is proud of the food or proud of the way their parents are or whatever cultural norms there are in that family they like a joke can be thrown and it's like okay well at least i know where i come from but with me an asian joke is like i don't even have a solid foundation from which to pull confidence or self-reassurance on Mm. so my emotional regulation with that was just shot out when i was going through adolescence Wow. Yeah, I could imagine. Yeah. I think when when you were talking about that, I was just thinking about um, maybe when people made like Asian jokes, quote unquote, um, you would feel like kind of like how, how you don't even know kind of how to react to it. 
because it's like am I offended because I'm Asian or am I offended because I'm adopted and I don't really even know yeah I could imagine um a lot of people like who grow up in biologically Asian families um they usually struggle with like the duality of either being Asian or being American but you have like another layer of like identity to peel off like yes because in many ways I I am whitewashed. I it's not only that I feel whitewashed, like I I am because I was brought up by white people and I mean even like full circle with what today we're collectively tackling in the Black Lives Matter movement. That's brought up a lot of identity things for me and it's like mm. am I a white ally? But I'm also a POC ally, but also where's my place? Where's my privilege? I have this little running joke within me that's like I, on the outside, do not have white privilege, right? Because of the way I look, but emotionally, mentally, and verbally in my dialect, I have white privilege. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah, I have, I spent a lot of time like peeling back, but yeah, throughout this movement that is right, rightfully so happening. And of course it's not centered on me or my existence at all, but in my allyship, I really had to look inward and be honest with myself and really think okay, what are the ways in which your thinking has been colonized? Like, let's be honest with ourselves. Like, now is not the time for self-pity. We did that through adolescence. We did that. Like, we're grown now. Like, let's be honest. Yep. Yeah. Um, I think I remember the word for that is, I read somewhere, it's called disassociation. It's Mm. just like, basically have, I don't know, multiple identities that you can't synthesize yet. Do you, when did your uh, parents tell you that you were adopted? So I can't remember a crystal clear thing. And honestly, memory is a very interesting thing for me because I've had a lot of trauma associated mm. with being adopted and switching cultures, even though it did happen when I was very young. Trauma actually uh, brings you into this thing called survival mode. Mm. And what survival mode does to your memory is it really hijacks it. I can't, I have honestly years of my life where I can't truly recall. Um, And I know that sounds really wild and honestly it kind of is, but anyway, bringing it back to your question, I don't remember a crystal clear time when my parents said, hey, you're adopted, but I remember I was very young. I was still living in Binghamton. I think it happened when I was maybe five or six or maybe seven, but I I realized it or my parents had a discussion again I can't believe I can't recall but I can't um and I was really angry I was really angry at my biological mother for giving me up quote-unquote which I'd love to hit on later but um and that's coming in part two of my YouTube video but um you know the narrative for me when I was six seven or eight was my mother gave me up and that I think the the automatic feeling associated was anger and just injustice. And my adoptive parents actually told me this little story growing up, which I don't feel like it's a lie because obviously I think they knew as I would grow older, I would realize that was just like a coping story. But they would tell me that my parents were celebrities. My mom was a superstar and that's why she couldn't raise a kid. And so I think I sort of believed in that. Um, But I was angry. And then I think from then on, there was just such deep shame 
where I didn't even want to think about it. So I was really like, talk about suppression. I was really suppressing my identity, my roots, my face, my everything. But in, it, it was happening. Like it was the most, it was honestly wild because I was suppressing something, trying to conceal something so much that was all around me and a part of my existence. So I couldn't really run from it, but I was desperately trying to for decades. Wow, that must have been so traumatic. Um, yeah, and I don't think I could really talk or I didn't really feel like I could talk to my adoptive parents about mm-hmm. that. Um, not because they would even have like a negative reaction or feel uncomfortable about it, but I just don't, I think there's, it's interesting because both my parents are social workers, right? They're therapists. So, but even in that, I don't think there's a lot of work in adoption therapy mm. in the social work field. And like, maybe that's my purpose, but I, I think there's a lot of work to be done in that area. And I think there are trauma therapists, there are relationship therapists, marriage, like every sort of therapist, but I really specifically think the niche of adoption for both adoptive parents and adopted children, there has to be some study, some work done on that. Um, And I don't think my parents really under, maybe understood the way I needed to specifically be talked to about that. Um, But that's okay. That's not, I don't hold any emotional weight towards that, towards them, but just thinking on the big scale, like I would love to do that for adopted people. Yeah, that would be totally great. Um, I took a class on last term on narratives of unbelonging, um, queer Asians Mm. and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I read um, a, I read a academic like literature kind of thing on a study actually done with a lot of Asian Americans and there was a uh, sample of people who were adoptees and I found because the study was like done by a um, therapist and a like academic at the same time Mm. so um, it was really interesting how they handled um, the trauma of like adoptive adoptees Um, and yeah if I can find that I can send it to you if you Please. Want. Yeah. Yeah, I would love that. That's really cool. I'm actually really happy to hear that there was a study done in in that. Yeah. Um well, kind of along the same lines, maybe this didn't happen or, or not. Um did you ever realize that you and your parents were like kind of different, like ethnicity-wise? Yeah, I can't again picture a clear point or memory that I realized that like a revelation but I did I mean you know I feel like it was maybe towards entering middle school and you know of course middle school and high school are just tough times for everyone (laughs) god please like have mercy on those middle schoolers and high schools like we all we all have to go through it but it's just tough for anyone in general Mm -hmm. and I think everyone sort of like putting on this personality that maybe isn't them but that's just part of adolescence as well um but yeah I think as I as I got into those middle school years and like started socializing more and more with a group of friends that I realized I was the odd one out there and then I kind of turned to my turn and looked inward towards my family and the optics of that and I was like oh my goodness, I feel like an outsider 
everywhere I am. Mm. Um, yeah, that was hard. That was hard. But my parents really did the best they could, and they did do a great job. Um, and they've been there through every step of the way. I think, you know, I say I, I would have liked more conversation to have happened. I would have liked more specialized care and discussion towards my adoption from them. But I I think also what came out of the beauty of sort of leaving it as like, nope, we're your parents, you're a kid, that's the end of the story, is that they didn't push me to talk about it. They didn't push me to discover anything. So I think in that, I gained a lot of empowerment in my mm. self-realization journey. Mm. Yeah. Did you ever tell your like group of friends that you were adopted and how was like their reaction to that? You know what? I don't think so. I think they just saw my parents and they were like, oh, yeah, that's her parents. Oh, I wow. honestly, yeah, yeah, yeah. I Woke kids. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I grew up around some nice kids. But, um, you know, of course I've had to deal with those, mi- not even microaggressive jokes, those aggressive jokes that were like, you're adopted. Like, I hate that that's an insult. And I would love to create a culture and an environment where that's a celebration yes. and that's cool like that it's it, it's not um yeah it's just like a quality that can be celebrated it's not an insult it's not neutral because of course we don't want to erase people's identities and what happened but please let's end that like becoming an insult or like I I, I feel like adoption before and maybe even now maybe just in my world it's not weird anymore (laughs) but like I feel like people are hesitant to talk about adoption with an adopted person and I I respect that they respect that but I feel like the conversation like it can be made really weird sometimes like oh you're making it weird now because I think what's happening at least for me like what happened was there was a lot of projection from um my parents friends or even some of my friends or strangers that I didn't know that like adoption was um unfortunate for me to experience and they projected some of their own guilt and their own pity onto me as if I felt that way so because they projected that I took that on to be my feelings and my thoughts when maybe all along they actually weren't. Mm. Um, so, so that was, that was tough. I don't think that adoption needs to be a pity thing. And I don't think it needs to be definitely don't need to be, um, doesn't need to be an insult. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, I think it's still kind of tab in certain circles to talk about adoption Mm -hmm. even or um, Mm -hmm. and especially in your case cross-cultural adoption um, gets very messy with people Um, yes yeah and do you have like any suggestions on how to help erase the stigma or taboo yeah yeah I feel that for adoptive people which is kind of the direction I want to go with my YouTube channel or like I don't know, eventually, if I do TikTok, I really want to, like, get into this. There's so many different platforms. Anyway, but um, I want to speak directly. I want to speak directly to adoptive people, and I want them to almost reparent themselves and, like, re-raise themselves in that way Mm. of understanding you don't have to take on other people's um, unintentional biases towards Mm -hmm. adoption as your own Mm. like I really feel that one of the most powerful tools I use is that as when I 
as long as I accept something about my story and accept something about me, it doesn't really affect me what other people say. So if someone were to go to me and were like, oh, I'm so sorry, like, oh, I bet adoption feels horrible, like being given up. So you were given up. And it's actually, but no, because I've done the preventative work of making me not not take their feelings on. Um, I can be like, oh, actually, you know what? I have done a lot of self-exploration in this and I actually don't see myself as a victim with adoption and I actually celebrate it. So I, something must be coming up for you because I actually, that's not my truth. Mm. I don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. And I find that adopted people can really take back some of that power mm. because of course they're there does feel like a loss of control, a loss of power and self-empowerment when you do have a lot of unanswered questions and you will always have a lot of unanswered questions. And I've had to grieve that. Um, I have what my therapist calls uh, something called that I do called chronic idealization. And what that is, is like this, uh, the therapist, Uh, the therapy term for it is maladaptive daydreaming. Anyone can look it up, but it's basically a coping mechanism of sort of daydreaming a different reality than you Mm -hmm. have. And I subconsciously made that muscle for me really strong. So all these, and when you do that over like years and for a long time, you sort of forget the line between what you idealized in your head and what actually happened. So I had to mourn all of those fantasies, all of those idealizations for me. Um, and, and I think, sorry, this kind of got off into a No, you're fine. Yeah. I know you're losing just like parts of yourself all the time. I would imagine. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of like some more personal journey through um, adoption, I want to dive a little bit more deeply on your um, cultural side. Um, Did you ever like want to seek that side of you, like um, learn Chinese or like, you know, visit China? So one of the things that my parents did sign me up for when I was little to... (laughs) sort of bring back my roots was Chinese lessons Yay. when I was yes when but I was no married. during that time because we all hated it <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny it it was really hard like we didn't stick with it like my parents went with me to do it oh, and dang. it was like a group of people that wanted to learn Chinese but I was I was young but I was like of course with anything the earlier you start it the easier it is so it was just hard and I didn't really understand my, I don't know if my teacher was the best, or, but I would really love to learn Chinese. And it's funny because all my life up until this past year, I thought where my province is, I thought they spoke Mandarin, but it was actually not until I uh, joined the cast of Miss Saigon where one of the women there uh, was from southeast china as well and she was like no like your people speak cantonese so i was like oh my goodness like how did i go two decades and and then some of my life thinking my like where i'm from they spoke a completely different language Uh so (laughs) thank god i didn't like you know bend over backwards learning mandarin and then i try to go visit my province and they're speaking cantonese how funny (laughs) would that be but um no i would of course 
love to do that. Uh, my partner and I actually planned a trip to Vietnam and China that was supposed to be July 1st. Oh. But of course, that's okay though. It's okay. It's really okay. Reschedule. Reschedule. I And we, um, he wanted to go to Vietnam because he was really inspired by the story of Miss Saigon. That's where we met. And um, of course, me with my background, I couldn't not go there to my province. Yeah. Um, and my province in Nanning is only 70 miles from Vietnam. So it's very close. It's mm-hmm. very close to the to the northern border of Vietnam. Um, so I think I would like to do that. But actually, I kind of think that coronavirus making that trip not possible might have been what was meant to be because during quarantine I really did a lot of self-work in my adoption and I kind of am like I want to feel that I am whole without having that be a missing piece of a place or a missing piece of a parent or a person like I want to feel like my existence is whole and then go to China. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It Before this, it was kind of like, well, an unanswered question is like, I don't know what my parents look like, or I don't know where the city I was born looks like, or I don't know what the orphanage looks like. And I think that if the way I was going was that those were missing parts of me. Mm. Um, but I think to be truly healthy for me, for me, is I want to feel completely good, completely self um, so comfortable in my adoption and in my skin and in my last name and then go to China because I've had anxiety growing up, um, like going to nail salons even and having uh, the people there speak to me in Mandarin or Cantonese and like me having to explain like, oh, I'm actually adopted. Like it, it's in those little ways that mm-hmm. I I really, really self-rejected and I would have anxiety about the thought of going to China and having the people there speak to me um, in the language. And then once they realize like I'm completely Americanized, like them shaming me. So then it's just like, it's this like double layer of shame. And what I realize is even if down the road, when I do go to China and I can't speak fluent Cantonese, like it's really okay. And the judgment that I'm, that I'm presuming that I'll receive might not even be a thing. Yep. So let me do the self-work now in the middle of the country in Kansas city (laughs) and let me be self-actualized here with just me and what's inside of me and then worry about traveling to the homeland. (laughs) Yeah. I think what you're saying is you want to be ready to go and you want to be like, even if you're missing part of your identity and you don't know who your parents are, you don't know what China looks like, you want to be comfortable in that knowledge so that when you actually go, you know, you can actually explore and take in all the sites instead of worrying about all of these things. Yes, 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 definitely. Yeah, well, um, you mentioned Miss Saigon, so mm. we're going to pivot a little bit <laughs> into your yes. super awesome career. Um, <laughs> so your first gig out of college was at uh, Disney Cruise Line. Mm-hmm. So do you want to uh, tell us about how it happened and how the experience was like? Oh, definitely. So um, because I went to college uh, for both acting and dance. I was a dual major in that. Uh, What happens during senior year is everyone just goes on audition. So you can 
uh, eliminate that weird gap year out of yeah, college yeah. or uh, wait, that's whatever. awesome. I wish we all had that. <laughs> yeah. Can we all have senior year just to apply to stuff? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. It wasn't in like the curriculum or whatever, but like on our um, weekends, like mm-hmm. we would just like travel. So um it was about a four hour drive from Fredonia in western New York, my school, to Pittsburgh, and that's where the Disney Cruise Line auditions were held. And I, growing up, I was actually never a Disney kid. Like I, I watched the Disney movies, but I was, and I always wanted to go to Disney World, and my parents never took me. But that's okay. Um, but I wasn't really like a die-hard Disney fan. Mm-hmm. So when this this audition came up, I was like, oh yeah, Disney, whatever. So I was, I just kind of went in and like did my thing and like didn't really care. And I honestly think that's when the universe like gives things to us. Mm. It's when we like let go and we're like, well, great if it happens, great if it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's what happened for me. And the audition went really well. I did two days of it. I did a callback and I sent in some videos after. And then I booked it like in April of my senior year, right before graduation, uh, either a month or two months later. And I that was just such a great feeling to know that I had a job lined up, especially as a performer, as an actor. I had, um, I used to have a horrible dentist who would make jokes about me being like a starving artist. And oh you, my me, God. Throwing, yes. Throwing jokes at me. Like, are oh, you ready to be homeless in a year? Like, and that felt so good to be booked and be like, actually, no, yes. I'm working for one of the biggest corporations in the world. Thank you so look much. Look at me now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look at me now. So um, that was just really great, though, for me to not have a gap year and to relax and enjoy my senior year and enjoy the summer before I started rehearsals that June. Um, and I really, I actually really loved my time at Disney Cruise Line. I did two contracts back to back. So the rehearsal period is two months in beautiful downtown Toronto. That's still one of my favorite cities. I would love to live there one day. Um, So two months there and then seven months on the ship, which it's a lot. And like, let me tell you about ship time. Ship time passes unbelievably slow. Okay, so we have this sort of saying that a day feels like a week, a week feels like a month, a month feels like half a year. Oh my god. Because you can't, you don't have regular life distractions, and you don't fill your day up with, like, transportation or running errands, like, or if if you have, your emotions are heightened, you're on the water, and there's nothing really to do, you're kind of contained, so if you have a bad day, you can't go, you know, to your favorite pizza place two blocks away, uh, and, like, console yourself with that, like, you have your bad feelings you are in that cabin alone and your feelings are just like bouncing back at you so that part was super hard that um mm-hmm. ship so time kind of did like quarantine <laughs> that time kind of like quarantine <laughs> honestly but no it was a blessing because of course like we traveled to like a bunch of different islands and mm-hmm. that was obviously stunning like it was like a vacation um with a lot of work of course um and I was the swing there so I understudied every one of the female tracks mm. um and I could go on at any minute. And that's actually what my role was in Miss Saigon. So this, uh, the swing is like a very, it's a special role in a cast. And it, it, it's just funny that my three years working at a college, two of those years, I swung. But um, my second contract with Disney Cruise Line, I was a primary track. So I, I had one track that I had to worry about that was so much easier Better, on my yeah. brain. <laughs> and it was actually like something I really wanted to do I think especially like seeing what it was 
the year before swinging, like seeing all the roles and like watching the show so many times, I, I knew I wanted this and then I got it. So the second contract was just really, really cool. Um, and like I said in my video, Disney was when I really came into accepting myself. I don't know about, I think the acceptance was before the self-love and like the self-acceptance really came with Disney because especially once I got on the ship, like the 37 countries that are represented, it's also outnumbered with POC. So mm. there's so many Filipino people. There's so many Jamaican people. There's so many people from Europe. And that just made me feel really good because I wasn't looked at as like, oh, the Asian girl. Like, uh, and that really was the narrative growing up, which was so detrimental when it could have been celebratory, but whatever, that that's past. Disney Cruise Line, the ship portion was really cool for me because I could just walk the halls of the ship and like not worry about being specimened because of my racial background. Mm. Yeah, I'm just thinking on it and Disney is so representative of everything. Um, yeah. There's definitely a lot of work to do with Disney and um, especially with this movement happening right now. Um, yeah. There's a lot of reconstruction happening for the theater community, for the Broadway community, mm -hmm. um, and in Disney Cruise Line. I'm a part of a Facebook group that, you know, we're trying to to bring about reform and contacting the the higher ups with Disney Cruise Line and being like, hey, this actually really isn't okay. Hey, this isn't represented correctly. Hey, you need to change this in your show. It's like really not great. The thing is with corporation, it's very, very hard um, because yeah. it's, especially something like Disney, it's very capitalist driven. It's yeah. very consumer driven and it's mm -hmm. what the people want to see. And who are the clientele of the Disney cruise ships? A lot of Americans that just want their kid to have a good time. Like that's the goal, you know? So they're, I mean, this is so generalized, but I, I would bet you my arm that they're not thinking at the forefront of their <laughs> mind about political and justice and social yes, reform. Yeah. And I would imagine most of them are rich white families um, who can afford, oh, you know, the wealth. Yes, yes. It completely. Or actually, if they're not, if it's more um, like middle class or lower families, they've saved up for like, we had guests on our ship that have saved up for decades yeah. for this one week, for this one week. And honestly, I almost think that there's almost an entitlement with that mm. because they saved up so hard and they're looking around at these like rich families that go on these ships for a month at a time or every single month. And like, because it's their one chance, like, you know, I'm not going to lie. Like I've seen some really bad treatment from the guests towards crew members. And like, I was a performer, so we got treated the best. We got the most respect. Think about the maintenance men, mm. the cooks, the yeah. servers. Think about how those service people get treated by this clientele. It That's something that was hard for me to see. And I don't know if it's something that my other castmates thought about, but I saw it and noted it and thought about it a lot. I heard that on a lot of cruise ships and like cruise trips, um, most of like the the maintenance workers and like servers and stuff are all POCs as well. Is that true? They are. They are. They there's a huge number of people 
from the Philippines there mm-hmm. and across all cruise ships. Like we would dock with other cruise ships and it, it was the same thing represented when we would get out on port. And um, the thing is for a lot of these countries, the American dollar translates yeah. as so much more. Mm-hmm. So you can do a contract at sea and you can be looked at as you are wealthy. You are wealthy when you go back to your country. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that doesn't mean that the, um, not working conditions, because Disney is very good about that, but the the hours that people work under mm-hmm. maritime labor is, Hassan Minhaj has a yes. series about, do you watch? Uh, yes, I love Hassan Minhaj. Yes. Y'all I watched the one watch- on cruise ships. <laughs> yes, yes. So you know all about MLC. Like, that yep. was a very good episode. And when I watched that, I was like, yup, yup, yup. Like, it, like one thing after another, I was like, you got that right. Mm-hmm. Um, I love so, Hassan. <laughs> <laughs> me too. He's so, so great. I really love yeah. his delivery and how he mixes um, his education with his comedic style. Yeah, exactly. But with like that sort of motivational, like inspirational thing, uh-huh. it's very good. <laughs> I when you were talking about how um the servers were treated sometimes I just remember like my mom she has been working in the restaurant industry ever since she got to America um as a server mm-hmm. and yeah um when she first came she didn't know any English so you know some you know um people would be really rude to her um and growing up I would see that um it just made me really angry um about that like yes yes and I'm sure that was so hard to watch so firsthand but and also so closely related to someone that that was happening to and I almost when you said that what came up for me was that um I don't think a lot of the time white people like let me just say it they know they're doing it because my own like actually um I had a boyfriend on the cruise ship and he was a server Mm. and when my I know my mom had bias I know my mom had prejudice about his job about his accent and it was very very painful for me to watch because I'm like how could you have raised me with such respect in my adoption and my culture but then you judge someone's accent or someone's occupation and that's just that type of injustice was very very hard for me and I have addressed it with her and you know we we eventually came to a level of understanding but that doesn't mean that that was okay Mm -hmm. and I like I told her I never want to ever hear out of your mouth again the word unsophisticated that was so harmful and like I wasn't even the one you were talking about but then again like I know Debbie like my mom she's a good-natured person so that's why I'm kind of like I don't think white people intentionally know they're being racist that they're being prejudiced because it's so ingrained but that's the work yep it's not something to just be accepted like that's the work yeah, I talk about this a lot um, in my previous poetry class about what quote-unquote standard language or quote-unquote standard English actually is. Mm, um, I just read a post about this actually, yeah. Yeah, like how can you say that my mom's English is not proper when you can actually understand her? Thank you. Know? you. <laughs> yes, yes. Yep, my, the post that I read actually on 
uh, an Instagram page that I, I love. Uh, her name is Erica Hart. I don't know if you've ever heard of know. them, but um, she's a trans, uh, no, her partner is trans, but she is a queer black femme mm-hmm. and her posts are just so freaking on point. Um, but her and her partner, Ebony, made this highlight in their Instagram about AAVE the African-American vernacular English. Mm. And in that, I learned that what is considered correct English, like what you were just talking about, that's actually so colonized in ways that we don't even understand. Like, actually, there's no correct English. And in AAVE specifically, the African-American vernacular English, you understand them, so that is English. Yeah, exactly. And it's like- you could have a southern <clears throat> accent. That's not proper English either. You, but you understand them. <laughs> and maybe yes. my mom's missing a few verbs, but you still understand her, right? That's the point. That's the point. And that's also, it's, it's so white supremacist because they always fail to think about how if they traveled to that person's country, exactly. they would not know anywhere to like have nowhere to start and the people that do have that understanding and do try to learn some language before they travel they are not the ones really judging yep people for their accents in america white people will never be able to learn chinese i'm just putting it out there (laughs) oh see see back full circle one part of me is like i completely think that's true and another part is like i hope that's not true because (laughs) i'm white and like i really want to learn it but i you know i also think like many things do run in the blood in the dna Mm. and i've actually noticed that like throughout growing up like my taste buds are catered for certain foods i like i have a very good uh a strong tongue for picking up impressions in my acting and like if someone teaches me different words in their language uh, like i i have very good pronunciation and i almost think that's attributed to my adoption because I spoke and understood a little bit of Cantonese when I was little. I did. And then, yeah, I have home videos from China where I'm speaking to the women on the street, like, and understanding them. And then I had to completely shift that. And even though I was a baby, you know, I I knew that language and I had to shift everything. So that's kind of the part of me that was like, if I can learn fluent English and have an American accent, I can learn anything. Mm, Yes. Yeah. That's at least what I try to tell myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should. Okay. Um, a little bit more forward in your career. Um, mm-hmm. You've been touring Miss Saigon. Um, you want to talk about that experience? Yes. Oh, Miss Saigon is so layered, as I'm sure y'all know. Yeah. Um, so... I literally had a conversation with my friend and roommate right now, Jackie Nguyen, who is a first-generation Vietnamese-American, and she was actually the first Vietnamese woman to play Kim in Macau in China. Yeah, no, no, no. And she was telling me all about, like, her family's history and her mom and, like, just how she felt doing Miss Saigon. And and we kind of came to agreement that, on one hand, Miss Saigon is completely taken from a white lensed perspective and not only that but a french 
perspective, the people who, Mm -hmm. the white people who colonized Vietnam. So it is through that lens. So you can't even really, like, I really feel like, again, the clientele that came to the cruise ship, the clientele that came to our shows across America for the tour, I really feel and I've said this to white, my white boyfriend, that they come in the audience and after seeing the show, they feel like they went to Vietnam. Like, I really feel that some people really felt that way. I'm serious, <laughs> oh because that's like, that's the highest level of like, culture that they've experienced. Yeah, um, that's what they teach at school, to that extent. Yep. Yeah, it's not their fault, because that is what they teach at school. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, we spent like one one week on black history like now you know what the black experience is that is what is taught in academia um but on one hand jackie and i agreed that like as asian americans we are so underrepresented in the theater film and tv commercial world um that on one hand it's a job so like that's the reparation like that's that's like you know that's how we're making money on the other hand like it the story is so so specifically and incorrectly lensed Mm. um and it really does paint asian americans in a weaker light i think and i think even though kim the main character is portrayed as an extremely strong and resilient vietnamese woman there's still that white saviorism like come on let's let's acknowledge it let's be honest with ourselves um but no matter what, because, you know, in the Black Lives Matter movement that's happening now, I really see all these white people coming out of the woodwork that have never, ever shown allyship before and, like, kind of policing. And I really don't think that's the most effective way to ally. And I see a lot of Facebook posts and Instagram posts that and stories that are like, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. This is wrong. This is right. And it's like, wait, like, mm, let's slow down because where are you like concentrate on you and you know even that instagram that i told you about erica hart like she has this whole thread about hamilton and how that's very backwards which i i can get behind i actually really really can get behind that rhetoric of how slavery is so glossed over yep but i don't know if i can agree with white people saying boycott hamilton because of this because it's those same people that are like boycott Miss Saigon, but it's like, you're talking about how you can fix it. And part of that is reparations Mm. like monetarily. And no matter what, at the end of the day, there are many POC represented in Hamilton and that's their job. That's their employment. That's your dollar funding them. Mm. So I don't, POC, it might be different. I at least feel it's different coming from a POC, but I personally feel weird when it's like white people saying boycott this show, boycott that show. And it's like, let, let us speak for ourselves. Yeah. It also feels kind of ingenuine for for some reason, for me. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's what I feel too. I I don't know if it's just, I don't know, my prejudice against white people coming out or something, um, but a lot of times when they do activism or because I only see it on social media. So there's like this social activism vibe going on. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I forgot what I was going to say. It's it's weird. The allyship going on can get weird. Like, let's just acknowledge it. There are certain, there are layers and there, like, there are tones to do it in. But I really hope that everyone 
at least self-reflects. Mm-hmm. And I think that I've almost felt that the people that are criticizing other people's allyship don't really know what their place is in this. And maybe some of that is white guilt. So that's yeah. how they feel they can contribute. Yeah. Or they just feel entitled to. <laughs> yeah, because because no one's ever shushed them, right? Like you yeah. and I grew up where people are like, be quiet. Like, yep. like your, your opinion doesn't matter. Or like, st- stay silent. Like mm. that's huge for us, right? So for them, they have never gotten that. And I think that's why it's very uncomfortable for them right oh, now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because for their whole lives, they've been told, you're right. You can speak up. Don't raise your hand. Just talk. Like they've been taught that, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. And as a collective, like POC, we have always been taught like our existence is wrong. So I think that's kind of where like why we're like, oh yeah, this is like, like we know this, we know this narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> um, this is kind of related, but I wanted to ask about how you felt when um, there were a lot of instances of xenophobia that emerged when. <sighs> coronavirus first came to America. Yes. Yes. Um, honestly, so I had my partner quarantining with me since March 15th, since our show ended, and I could not go to the grocery store without him next to me. Um, cause he was that shield for me. Cause he's white, like, and that sucked. And I made sure he knew that. And he understood that. And like, it, it's just horrible because I have a lot of privilege in my aesthetic i i have thin privilege i have like my dialect that white privilege i have i have a lot of different visual privilege and cultural privilege from my white upbringing but no matter what i still got dirty dirty looks from people at the grocery store and a lot of people like moving away from me and hearing about old asian men being attacked in bodegas or drugstores or whatever it was that killed me like that's that's a level of humanity inhumanity that really broke my heart um and I know that I didn't even get the brunt of it and my Saigon um my my tour uh my tour friends in the women's dressing room like we we have a group uh chat we have like a text messaging and like there was a period of time in quarantine where we talked about like yo, this happened to me today. This happened to me today. Like, we've all gotten go back to where you came from. And it's like, "Mm, I I was born, like, I wasn't born here, but like, a ton of them were born here. And it's like, (laughs) like, what? No one actually came from America except for the Native American indigenous people. Like, can we please just get that straight? Like, I don't know how, how ignorant you think you, you know, you sound like, you don't know. Um, But it was really, that was hard just but in the grocery store like I mean and I know that I didn't even get the brunt of it because I have heard horror stories about my Asian American uh brothers and sisters and whoever else around the country and that was that was really really hard to hear I don't know did you experience anything personally Fortunately, I did not as well. I was more like um, slide looks like what you got. Um, when yeah, it, microaggressions. Yeah. When, when it first started, I was like, my family was so paranoid and very cautious beginning in January because it was happening in China and they knew 
you know, it was going to come yep. here. Thank you. January. Do you hear that everyone? January. <laughs> like, yeah, I was working at a grocery store, um, when, it, when, when like this thing was happening and the, the business, like, cause it was mostly like Asian Chinese, like, uh, customers who came. Mm-hmm. So during January, February, those two months, business was so slow. Nobody came out because they knew about this like coronavirus thing. And then um, I finally got, you know, laid off and the store closed for a while in March. But when it closed, I was very uncomfortable when I went into like a white dominated grocery store, like Walmart or like Publix like that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so I like tried to avoid it (laughs) and I honestly only went to like Asian grocery stores which made me a lot more comfortable because also everybody was wearing a mask and you know (laughs) yeah you you would like it almost sounds like you culturally felt safer and Mm -hmm. physically and medically wise you felt safer exactly yep yeah yeah Um, definitely so yeah well my well, in Binghamton, there was this Chinese restaurant that my parents liked to get takeout from, and they it closed, but for a long period of time. Like, it didn't reopen when other um, Chinese or other Asian restaurants reopened, and they're like, I wonder why this place isn't opening. I'm like, mom, dad, like, maybe they got a death threat. Like, we don't know, but that's an actual possibility, and I mm-hmm. want you to know that's an actual possibility for them. Yeah. Or they just don't have any more money. <laughs> yeah. 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 Seriously. Well, um, thank you so much today for everything. I felt yeah, like it was very productive talk and very interesting. Um, I love have... these kind of talks. Do you have any other questions? <laughs> no, I don't. I uh, just I wanted to ask you. if you wanted to plug anything or have anything else to say. Oh, thank you. Well, obviously, I'll be doing a lot more work around the Asian adopted experience mm-hmm. um, on my YouTube channel called The Vlog by Alana. And I also have a blog called The Blog Mylana, um, and that's a domain. So I I really I really love being creative on that platform. But I just recently realized that, like in talking about niche or whatever, because you kind of have to play that game on social media. Yep. I I I do want to go that route with mm. my content, and I think the very the very like almost destiny of me being adopted and the thing I've suppressed all my life, that's going to be my golden ticket. That's going to be my purpose. Mm. So the thing I've been running away from now, I'm recently being like, Hey, I'm already an expert at this and I don't need to go to school because I live this experience. So let me talk about it. And you know, I say this in my part two of my YouTube video coming on Wednesday, but if I was the young girl that I was telling you about in this conversation growing up in middle school, like, and I felt so lost. I had dark, dark thoughts. If I had stumbled upon a piece of content or a YouTuber that was adopted and spoke about acceptance and belonging and self-belonging, like I, that would have brought me so much peace and that really might've changed my life, you know? Mm. So no matter what the numbers are, like if my message gets out or even sparks conversation or just inspires some little kids somewhere in the world that is adopted like I would that's my goal that's my mission you know yes everyone please check her out she's amazing (laughs) Karen thank you so much for having me I really can't tell you like how much this means even being on Asian Hustle Network and Asian Creative Network like 
it's a level of belonging for me being adopted and like not having people um, illegitimize my existence of being Asian American because I've struggled a lot with being like, okay, if I'm adopted, that takes away from my Asian heritage, but it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I've really, and no one shamed me into that. I've never gotten smack from any Asian person about that. That was my own um, presumption. But I don't know, being on those platforms really heal me. And like the fact that it's a safe space and not only safe space, but encouraging space for me Mm -hmm. to use my voice, like that brings me a level of healing and belonging that I'm sure many of those people aren't even aware of. So that's just a gift. Yeah, no, thank you so much for doing this with me. 